It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In the dark quiet of the night, a village waits in terror to see if the horrid spirit that was laid to rest in the town cemetery will remain in its grave. As the hours grow, the tension in the streets lessens. Maybe the horrid spirit of the man they put to rest was not restless enough to come back to life. Their fears, however, are confirmed when they hear the pacing of stiffened footsteps and a familiar voice calling out in the night. It is hunting those who have done it wrong during its lifetime, and no mortal man will be able to stand against this evil spirit in the hours of the night. Only when the day breaks again will they be able to go to the grave of the unfortunate soul and destroy the corpse so that it cannot return from the land of the dead. Until then, however, the town will be at the mercy of this vile monster, a monster that refuses to die without revenge. Welcome to Freaky Folklore, the podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. Today we are discussing the Revenant, the spirit of a wicked person full of hate for the living that seeks vengeance on man. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave an honest review on iTunes, too. The more we get, the more we grow, and hopefully, the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. Warning. This episode contains depictions of animal cruelty, harm, and death. In a house on the west side of Cambridge in 1845 lived a wealthy married couple with a young boy who they could not understand. Bill and Margaret Addington didn't think they could have children. After ten long years of trying to conceive, they had given up. So it was a joyful but shocking surprise when Margaret realized she was pregnant after 15 years of marriage. As their baby grew into adolescence, their joy turned to worry, and eventually, despair. As they began to notice the depraved behavior that their only child exhibited. Peter made sure the rope was tied tightly around the top of the potato sack. The kitten began to wiggle and meow inside the bag as he slowly submerged it in the cold running water. He had considered using hot water, but he didn't want to get burnt. He could feel its tiny claws scratching at the bag as it struggled in terror beneath the water. After a minute, 
its movements began to slow until eventually they stopped altogether. Peter raised the bag out of the tub and dumped the kitten's lifeless body onto the bathroom floor. He began to poke at its side with his finger. He was trying to pry its tiny eyes open when a scream filled the small bathroom. Peter didn't jump from surprise or fear. He jumped because the high pitch hurt his ears. He covered his ears and stumbled back away from the kitten. That is when he realized that his mother was standing over him with a horrified look on her face. Peter, what have you done? She cried as she reached down to retrieve the kitten from the floor. Why would you do something so cruel? She cradled the kitten in her arms and looked up at Peter with a mixture of terror and disgust. Go to your room and don't come out until you are told. That was Peter's first memory of his animal experimentation. He was only six years old at the time. In the years between then and now, at the age of 13, he had done many experiments. Most of them he had done without notice, but a few his parents had discovered. There had been puppies, kittens, guinea pigs, and the occasional baby bird that fell out of the tree in the backyard. He had tried drowning, suffocation, needle insertion, and dissection. He was curious about pain and suffering, something that was foreign to him. Peter didn't feel things like other people and creatures did. He felt physical sensations, but emotions were an enigma to him. When his father caught him with Shep, the family dog, tied to his workbench out in the shed, it was the final straw. Peter had the dog strapped down to the table so that he could not move, and when his dad walked in, he had just covered him in kerosene and was about to set him on fire. They locked him in his room this time, but he could hear them talking through the vent in his wall. His mother was crying, and even though his father was angry, Peter recognized the fear in his voice. He had studied fear well. Their conversation concluded with the decision to send him away to some place with structure and discipline. As it turns out, the King's Boarding School for Boys in Canterbury was the place with structure and discipline that Peter's parents chose to send him. Up until now, he had been taught at home by a private tutor, but he was often distracted. They hoped that under constant supervision and with a strict schedule, his mind would cease to wander down the horrifying path it had for the last many years. A Christian boarding school could instill the moral character that seemed to be missing in their son. On a foggy September morning in 1858, Peter and his parents boarded a train that would take them to Canterbury, 76 miles from his home. Peter didn't make friends quickly and his small size for his age made him a quick target for the school bullies. His first day in class, he had the misfortune to meet Gavin, Ian, and Cornelius. Gavin was the son of a wealthy businessman who had been raised by various nannies while his mother and father traveled. He was a spoiled but insecure boy. At 13, he was already as large as a full-grown man, and because of this, and his mean nature, the other students were afraid of him. 
Gavin always had his two companions, Ian and Cornelius, with him everywhere he went. He called them his apprentices. Each of these boys were nearly as large as Gavin. Gavin had grown tired of his usual prey, the skinny boy who liked to read, and the boy who was short and plump, that they nicknamed Butters. Then he saw the new kid. He was unusually small and frail-looking, and when he walked into the classroom, he made direct eye contact with Gavin, who gave him his most intimidating look. The boy did not waver. Gavin looked over at Ian, who was sitting in the desk next to him, and then looked back towards Peter and nodded, the signal to his companion that they would be needing to teach this new kid a lesson. The torture started that same day when Gavin and his henchmen friends cornered Peter in the hallway by the stairwell. You are awful small and pretty to be a boy, Gavin said as he shoved Peter against the wall. Ian and Cornelius stepped out of the shadows and flanked him. Peter tried to step around him, but the two larger boys pinned him to the wall and prevented his escape. Gavin stepped closer, so close Peter could smell his sour breath. Maybe we should drag you under the stairs to check and see which you are, a boy or a girl. Their actions did not affect Peter like most. Instead, he became enraged and spit in Gavin's face, and then quickly turned and bit Cornelius on the hand. While the two boys were cursing, he gave Ian a sharp kick in the calf with his hard leather shoe and then ran. He could hear the boys rallying behind him about to give chase, but Peter, after rounding a corner, ducked through the first door he came to and found himself in the dimly lit chapel. Peter made his way to the front of the large room and crawled beneath the altar and curled up. He hid there listening until he heard the bell toll, and then he relaxed and drifted off to sleep. Gavin, Ian, and Cornelius did not easily forget the humiliation of the smaller boy defying them, and in the weeks following, Peter suffered beatings and torments of many different kinds. Until finally, on a gloomy Saturday afternoon, the bullies, not knowing the true spirit of the boy they were persecuting, went too far. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? 
download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. In the dark of the night, a village waits with terror in their hearts to see if the evil spirit laid to rest in the village cemetery will remain in its grave. As hours tick by, they begin to relax. Maybe the evil spirit of the man they had laid to rest was not restless enough to come back. When they hear footsteps, their worst fears are confirmed. They hear a familiar voice calling out, hunting those who have done him wrong in his lifetime. No mere mortal will stand a chance against this evil spirit while it is still night. Only when the sun rises and the creature rests will they be able to destroy his corpse and put an end to the terror. A revenant in Scandinavian folklore is the spirit of a wicked person full of hate for the living that continues to spread fear wherever it goes, even after its death. Often a revenant stays invisible, but if one does reveal itself, you will notice it has lost every human characteristic and been transformed into something considerably more horrific than the sinner it once was. They are said to be tall, monstrous figures, often with claws and jagged teeth, and so black they seem to have been created from darkness itself. In some cases they can be gigantic and have been described as tall as a pine tree. When one meets a revenant, they are affected by a kind of suffocating sickness. They will become weak as the demon is sucking the life out of them. Sometimes a revenant will attack and eat people, although usually that will only be the person who has been responsible for his or her death, or one of their relatives. If a revenant does not make it back to its resting place by sunrise, it will become paralyzed. There is said to be different kinds of revenants that come back to haunt the living, because all that it takes to create a revenant is a restless or angry spirit that had lived an evil, wicked life while it was alive. It opens the category significantly. Although there seem to exist many notable subcategories within the category of revenants, the term for which the creature is known does not imply any limitations for who or what may be considered a revenant. The word revenant is said to be derived directly from the Latin word revenants, which means returning. This word was used to refer to the way the revenant appeared, as an animated corpse instead of a ghost. However, it is important to note that there do exist variations of revenants that would allow for ghostly categorization. Ghosts who appear in ghostly forms are said to take the shape of their corpse in most instances, though there are revenants who can be identified because of how quickly they manifest themselves following a burial, and because they are unusually clean and surprisingly overdressed. Other than taking a ghostly form, these revenants tend to adhere to the same rules as those who have returned from the land of the deceased. Revenants are most often motivated by revenge, and a restless spirit that feels its work on the land of the living hasn't been completed. Because of this, these creatures will return, either to haunt their living kin, kill living people it harbors ill will towards, or spread plague and disease. It is believed that their spirits are so unsatisfied that they can reanimate their bodies and escape their graves. Most legends say that revenants hold power only at night. During the day, 
they must retreat to their graves and sleep in a state that appears similar to death, but is not considered actual death. Though there are plenty of tales about revenants who return to life to hunt and harm specific people, the majority revolve around the creature spreading death and disease among survivors of its village. Because of this, it is often hypothesized that the tale of the revenant originated when someone found a corpse in an unusual state of decay and didn't know what to make of it. The appearance of the undead is often gory and difficult to behold. The disgusting creature is thought of as having reanimated its body and dug itself out from its own grave to terrify certain people it holds a vendetta against or entire villages. The undead is associated with death and disease because of its horrible appearance. It is said that the undead almost always appears in a decaying body, but hasn't decomposed to the point where it cannot be recognized by those who knew it in life. Because of its foul smell, the undead is said to be easily detectable from many yards away. The fingernails are said to be bloody and jagged from digging itself out of its grave. The clothing of a revenant is said to be in a similar state of decomposition and destruction as it is often torn during the escape of the corpse from its coffin. If the revenant has skin, it is said to hang from its lifeless limbs in shreds. The body of a revenant is a frightening sight to behold. It is often said to have missing chunks of flesh revealing its bones and internal organs, if it had any. Maggots and worms are said to be found in the open wounds of a revenant. The bodies of revenants are always said to be bloated with the blood of the people they've murdered. They do not require blood to survive. However, it is speculated that the drinking of the blood may be an act of pure violence that separates them from vampires, who are dependent on blood to survive. The drinking of blood is said to help separate revenants from vampires because they are not dependent on the consumption of blood to continue their existence, unlike vampires. Though it is thought to be possible that revenants may come alive again for a variety of reasons, it is also safe to conclude that a revenant is motivated by business that they feel needs to be completed. Leaving their life without finishing a purpose causes their soul to become restless and is commonly thought to cause them to possess their once living body and walk among the living. In most revenants' cases, it is said that the resurrected individual had an evil spirit when they walked among the living and were too restless to just lay in peace for the remainder of eternity. Instead, they seek to reanimate their once living body and terrify the living that they left back when they passed into the afterlife. Other revenants seem to resurrect because of the nature of their death. This is especially true for people who died violent deaths or were murdered. Such revenants are known to haunt their living relatives. In certain cases, such revenants return from the grave in order to exact their revenge on those responsible for their death. Sometimes, such revenants return to bring illness and disease to the guilty household, while in other cases, the revenant seeks to murder specific people that were somehow connected to their demise. Because revenants are considered to be disturbed spirits, that are driven by an insatiable hunger for human flesh, the only way to stop them is to dig up their graves during the daytime hours. 
While there have been indeed attempts to bring down revenants during the nighttime hours when they walk among humans, this is considered to be very risky and extremely difficult. It was once common practice to try to put a revenant down by digging up its grave and decapitating the corpse, after which the heart had to be staked or removed. And then the corpse was either burned, sprinkled with holy water, or otherwise disposed of. After this, the head was often separated from the body and disposed of separately. Sometimes the head was thrown into the sea or river, or else it was buried on consecrated ground. It was believed that the prior sins of the undead would weigh down the head so much that the revenant would not rise again. William of Newburgh, also known as William Parvis, was a church canon and historian in 12th century Yorkshire. William's greatest work of literature was the History of English Affairs. The book was a telling of Britain's history between the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and 1198, the year of William's death. The book is a primary source of information on the period known as the Anarchy, a time between 1135 and 1153, when civil war led to the widespread breakdown of law, order, and society across the country. The book is also noted for telling detailed accounts of the undead. In Britain, in the 12th century, the notion that the soul could potentially be revived after death was common, and William provided various examples in his book to support this notion. The story of a guy from York, who lived close to William, is used as the book's most famous example of a revenant. This sinner had married after running from the city's justice system. His suspicions about his new wife's infidelity gradually grew, so he began spying on her while lurking in the rafters. The man perished a few days later after falling to his death below in a fit of wrath. The man was buried in the churchyard, but he quickly emerged from the ground. As further deaths occurred as a result of the corpse's presence around town, an enraged crowd soon arrived at the church with spades in hand. The corpse, when they dug it up, was swollen to an extraordinary repulsiveness, with its countenance beyond measure and turgid, filled with blood, while the cloth in which it had been wrapped appeared virtually torn to bits. Naturally, the corpse's state and the allegation of blood consumption make one think of vampire legends. The revenants were used to explain disease that had afflicted local communities, the same as vampire legends. William claimed that a bad odor always accompanied an undead person and that a disease will probably come next. Like vampires, the only method to eliminate a revenant was by burning out its heart or decapitating it and then setting it on fire. It is believed by many that vampires, werewolves, and zombies are types of revenants, but I believe they are completely different entities and only share similarities. While some revenants may consume blood or human flesh, they do not need it to survive like the vampire. A werewolf is believed to be a living human with a curse or a disease where a revenant is only created after death. A zombie, though the most similar to the revenant, has one major difference. It has no purpose, no motive. It is a mindless creature driven by hunger, not anger or revenge. The Revenant is referenced all throughout pop culture, but usually it is misrepresented. 
You will find revenants in the Doom game series, where they are monsters that give off a high-pitched shrieking sound. They take the form of tall, animated skeletons with brown bones and metallic silver body armor equipped with shoulder-mounted missile launchers. They appear with blood and gore running down their ribcage. Revenants have become a popular part of culture since their creation, and some notable examples of revenants in film would be the crow and spawn. They differ from zombies by the fact that they tend to retain human-level intelligence and often return to their slumber after exacting revenge. Some troubled spirits only want to find peace. They want the crime that led to their death to come to light, or they want to receive forgiveness for the evil deeds they committed while they were alive. A revenant, however, is much worse. Peter had been plotting a way to stop Gavin and his friends for good. They had left him bruised and broken on more than one occasion, not knowing that eventually, Peter would show them that he could be even more cruel than they were. He had watched and learned as much as he could about Gavin, and found out early on that the school pet, a large old St. Bernard named Bernie, seemed to be the only creature that Gavin did not abuse. Peter knew he could never physically overcome Gavin, but he could get him in his only soft spot. Even if it meant he may get expelled, Peter didn't fear expulsion, resenting his parents for sending him away in the first place. Early Saturday morning, while everyone else slept, Peter snuck out to Bernie's kennel next to the stable and began to enact his plan. He had stolen some rope that he had found in the stable earlier that week and had formed a noose, something he had practiced and mastered at home but had never got to use. After making sure no one was around to witness his actions, Peter opened the kennel door and slipped in. Bernie, excited to have a visitor, pounced on him and almost knocked him over. While the dog was excitedly welcoming his visitor, Peter slipped the rope around his neck. He then threw the rope over the top of the fence and exited the enclosure. Once outside, he picked up the rope and began to pull, reeling the heavy dog slowly off his front paws. But the dog was too heavy. Determined to get the job done, Peter ran to the stable and found one of the pulleys used to lift large bundles of hay from the ground. After he detached it, he ran back to the kennel and hooked the pulley to the top of the fence, and then ran the rope from Bernie's neck through the pulley and outside the fence. He then grabbed the rope and began to pull. The dog slowly rose into the air, crying and fighting the whole way. When he was dangling high enough from the ground that his feet could no longer touch, Peter tied the rope off and sat back and watched as the poor creature struggled for its life and then finally stopped moving. He was reveling in the sick pleasure that he felt from watching the animal suffer. It made him feel powerful. He was so lost in the moment, he didn't hear the approaching footsteps. He was startled when he heard the screams. It was Gavin. He was carrying a bowl of meat scraps from the kitchen, which he dropped as soon as he saw Bernie's lifeless body hanging from the kennel. Gavin ran and tried to free the dog, but it was useless. When he realized it was too late, his attention turned to Peter. 
What the hell have you done, you sick freak? He growled. Peter stood his ground and looked him directly in the eye and warned. Touch me again, and next time that will be you. But Gavin's reaction wasn't how Peter had imagined it. He thought the boy would be terrified and run away. But instead, Gavin charged him. He hit Peter in the chest with his shoulder so hard that Peter's feet left the ground, and he landed on the ground with Gavin on top of him. Peter tried to block the blows as the bigger boy pounded his face repeatedly with his large fists. He now knew what people meant when they said they saw stars. He was only seeing bright flashes of light every time a fist made contact with his face. Until finally, the lights went out, and Peter was in the dark. Gavin sat back on his hands, breathing heavily, as the rage he had felt slowly began to be replaced by fear. Peter was laying on the ground, face covered in blood, unmoving. In a panic to hide what he had done, Gavin grabs Peter by the ankles and pulls him into the stable, where he covers him in hay. He had to hide the body until he could get help. He had to get Bernie down too before the dead dog brought attention that he didn't need until he took care of Peter's body. After dragging the dog into the doghouse in the kennel, he ran back inside to find Ian and Cornelius. Moments later, he returned with them both. After he took them to the stable and showed them Peter's body, Cornelius ran outside and threw up, while Ian scratched his head and asked, Did you kill him? Gavin, trying to hold back tears, told Ian what had happened. It was an accident. I didn't mean to kill him, but I just couldn't stop. When Cornelius returned, the three boys hatched a plan to get rid of the body. Ian remembered the old well out back behind the school. He suggested that they drag Peter's body to the well and drop it down into the hole. No one will ever find him there, he assured Gavin. An hour later, Peter woke choking in a dark, wet place. He could smell the musty earth all around him. He didn't know where he was, but he could see a sliver of light coming from above him. He began to search the walls around him for a way out. There was nothing, no place to get a hold. Peter cried for help, but his voice didn't penetrate his surroundings. He dug at the rock and dirt all around him until his nails were broken and bleeding. Peter lost track of time, bloodied and bruised. He laid in the soggy bottom of the old well. His terror turned to blind rage that consumed him until he blissfully drowned in it. Three days had passed since Gavin, Ian, and Cornelius had dropped Peter's body into the well. A search had been conducted, and when they found Bernie's body in the kennel, they decided that Peter had killed the dog and ran away. Late on that third night, the three boys led by Gavin returned to the well. After worrying that it had not been covered enough to keep the smell from filling the air and leading someone to discover their secret. It was a bright, clear night, and the moon lit their way through the field. Gavin was chilled by the task at hand, but he knew he had to be sure. When they reached the well, Ian lit a candle from his pocket with matches he had stolen from a teacher's desk. 
Squatting down, he inspected the top of the well. Gavin standing next to him and held sharply when the light from the flame illuminated the top of the well that was gaping open. The wood planks that covered it were splintered in places, as if something had been chipping away at it from the inside. Ian held the light closer to get a better look, but when he did, a small, bony, decayed hand reached out and grabbed him by the wrist. He tried to pull away, but the small hand was so strong that he thought his wrist might snap. Gavin grabbed him by the shoulders and pulled, trying to help him get free but whatever was down there was stronger than them both. It gave one hard yank, and Ian's body lurched forward, landing on the remaining wooden planks so hard that the whole surface shattered and gave way. Gavin fell back and watched in horror as Ian disappeared into the well. Cornelius had been watching with a look of pure terror on his face, and when he felt his bladder give way, he turned and ran as fast as he could back towards the school. Left alone, Gavin stared, as if paralyzed at the opening to the well. It was silent for a moment, and then he heard it. Something or someone was climbing towards the top. Ian? He called out in a shaky voice. Is that you? No answer came, just scratching and clawing that was drawing nearer to the surface until finally that bony decayed hand reappeared, followed by another. Gavin couldn't move no matter how hard he tried. His mind and body would not cooperate. He watched and tears began to fill his eyes as Peter began to pull himself out of the well. His flesh was putrid and moist and it sagged from his bony body. His eyes were lifeless, but when they found Gavin, they began to kindle with rage, causing him to move faster. With the speed of a creature of the night, he crawled out of the well towards Gavin. Gavin didn't dare flinch as this monster pushed him to the ground and looked down into his eyes. I told you what would happen if you ever touched me again. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts, such as Tales from the Break Room and Redwood Bureau. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to CarmenCarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. Tune in next week as we revisit your favorite European folklore monsters from past episodes. Until next time, stay safe out there, because this world is a strange one.